السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد So last week Alhamdulillah we began with the tafsir of Surah Al-Humazah and we I think we just took the first verse or we did the introduction and we did the tafsir of the first verse of the surah and essentially basically what we discussed last week is the, the majority of the lesson was concerning these two phrases that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions within the first verse, humaza and lumaza, and what the scholars said they refer to. So we said that there were some scholars amongst the uh, scholars of Arabic language who said that the two mean the same thing. The two mean the same thing, both words refer to one and the same thing. But the majority of the scholars were of the view that it's not the same thing, but that there is a difference in meaning. And one of the reasons why they said that there's a difference in meaning is Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah, or rather in his tafsir, uh, because his tafsir, Adwa'ul Bayan, which is authored by Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah, and the book is, you know, like, it is ascribed to him. The Sheikh, rahimahullah, passed away before he could complete the book. So he passed away before his tafsir was complete. And then the remainder of his tafsir was completed by his student, Sheikh Atiyah Salim, rahimahullah. Uh, and Sheikh Atiyah, he's the one who completes, and he's like one of his major students. So he obviously took from the Sheikh's knowledge and he was learning and studying from with him. And then he completed the rest of the book. So sometimes when you say Sheikh Muhammad he said, technically like it's a student who wrote the end portion of the book. But anyway... He mentions in his tafsir that Allah Azza wa mentions the two concepts of humaza and lumaza, or the root word rather, of the two, elsewhere in the Quran where he separates them. He doesn't bring them together, showing that there is a slight difference in what they're referring to and in the meaning. So the majority of the scholars were of the opinion, therefore, that humaza and lumaza are two different things, and they differed exactly what they refer to. Over a number of, of, of opinions, they kind of come to the same thing. The first is, some of them said, that one is to dispraise someone openly in front of them, and the other one is to demean them behind their backs in their absence. That's like kind of the first body of opinion. And there are amongst the scholars those who will say one is for doing something, humaza is doing it openly, and the other one is for doing it uh, behind someone's back. And there are others who invert the two, right? They reverse that and they say the opposite. And so that shows you that the two terms linguistically are very close together in meaning, but that there is a slight difference. So that's like kind of one main opinion as to the difference between the two. The second one is what? That one refers to words or verbal abuse, and the second one refers to physical or actions, right? Either by signaling something or making some type of, of um, you know, like whether you wink or you do something, you, you do something physically, and that's basically how you're demeaning that person, you're slandering them, you're backbiting them, you're in some way belittling them. And then the third opinion that some of them also had, so that's like the kind of two bodies of, of the main two kind of opinions, and then some of them said, no, it refers to uh, someone who, who harms someone in terms of their nasab, in terms of their lineage. So one is specific concerning attacking someone about something specific concerning them like their lineage and their background or their ethnicity and so on. They essentially come to the same thing. Right? Essentially it is the same thing in the sense that the terms are referring to 
slandering and backbiting and speaking ill of other people and belittling and demeaning them. And no doubt in our religion, as you all know, like there are many hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, verses of the Quran that speak about the importance of maintaining a person's honor and their position and their status and not to do anything that verbally or physically diminishes that without due cause or right. So Allah Azza wa tells us in the Quran, to the extent, يَا يُهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اجْتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الظَّنِّ إِنَّ بَعْضَ الظَّنِّ إِثْرٍ Or you who believe, stay away from evil thought, for verily it can lead to sin. وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا And don't spy on one another. وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا And don't backbite one another. أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتًا فَكَرِهْتُمُوهُ and the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that speak about, and we mentioned like some of them last week, but speak about the importance of, you know, like watching what you say and your words and your tongue and the words that come from it. There are many in the sunnah. So why is Allah Azza wa dispraising these people? Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala admonishing, rebuking? Not only that, but he's telling them that they would have punishment and destruction, as we said is the tafsir of the word wail. It is because of the harm that they cause verbally, because of the things that they say, and because of the harm that they cause. Uh, and you know, like we mentioned last week, the difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir as to whether the verse refers to a single individual or whether it refers to it is a general verse that refers to everyone. Even those who will say that it is a specific verse, meaning that the reason for revelation was due to a specific individual. Well then say the ruling, however, is general, right? Just because the verse is revealed because of a particular incident or a story doesn't mean that the ruling is only for that person and not for anyone else. However, was it revealed for someone, because of someone? Some of them said yes, whether it's Al-Walid ibn Mughira or whether it's Umayyah ibn Khalaf or whether it's Al-Akhnas ibn Shuraiq or Jamil ibn Amir or any of those other chieftains and leaders of Quraysh. And some of the scholars then mention that look at how Allah Azza wa Jal generally in the Quran, the general principle and etiquette of the Quran is that it never specifies people by name. It doesn't speak about people. Right? And that's the general etiquette unless there's a need or unless, for example, you're having a conversation where everyone kind of knows who's being spoken about or something. Generally, the Quran doesn't speak about people by name. It doesn't name them. It will refer to them by title sometimes. Right? The leaders the chiefs, al-mala, is very common in the Quran, Allah Azza wa calls al-mala, al-mala is the nobility or the people who had uh, power and had say within that community. It is only the rare individual like Abu Lahab from the enemies of Islam that is named, that is mentioned by name. Because generally Allah Azza wa doesn't mention them. And some of the scholars said here, for example, if we were to take the opinion that it was revealed concerning a certain specific individual, some of those individuals that were mentioned by the scholars of tafsir would actually go on to accept Islam. They would become Muslim later on. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebukes them by way of action, but later on the individual themselves becomes a Muslim. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ often when he would speak about these issues, it is the action that is referring to that is correcting, not necessarily the person. Because the person, may, as everyone does, has good and bad, and maybe they can improve and change and so on. And so it's not linking the action to the individual, rather the action itself. And that's why you get those hadith where the Prophet ﷺ would often say, مَا بَالُوا أَقْوَامٍ 
what is wrong with people. Right? He would often say that when he's addressing the community in, in large because no one really knows and it's possible that I could have that mistake and you can have that mistake in the third person and so you don't even know that Prophet is speaking about you in that context even though he may well be speaking about you because it's very likely that in the congregation there are many people who fit that description and many people who uh, have that same uh, weakness. So, <clears throat> okay. So, um, I think we covered that last week. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we did that last week. Um, so, yeah, so Allah Azza wa Jal, therefore, He doesn't mention people specifically by name. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this surah, therefore, and, and the opinion of the majority of the scholars of tafsir, Ibn Atiyah, Tabari, and others, we said was that the verse is general. It doesn't refer to anyone specifically and wasn't revealed because of a specific incident. It is general. Meaning what? Meaning that it refers to all of those people of Quraysh and all of those people who are enemies of the Prophet who would criticize him and call him names and, and, and belittle him and backbite and slander. And all of those people, it refers to all of them and not just one as opposed to the other. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number two then, he goes on to mention their description. Woe to the one who is a slanderer, a backbiter, one who demeans. And then Allah Azza wa gives a further description of them. Who has gathered wealth and counted it. Or, you know, other translations, who amasses riches, counting them over. Who accumulates wealth and counts it. So there's two descriptions or two things that Allah Azza wa refers to here. Number one is the gathering of wealth and number two the counting of wealth. Why? Isn't it kind of like the same thing? There is a slight difference obviously between gathering and, and but they're kind of like you know inferred right? If you're a person who gathers wealth why does Allah Azza wa specify that they gather the wealth and they count the wealth? Counting refers to his greed or zeal over it and like you know, eagerness over it. Not giving in charity, right? That they're constantly like counting every penny and pound and you know, like that kind of concept. Hoarding, hoarding right? The amassing or hoarding in the sense, uh, you know, it's kind of the same because hoarding means what? That you're not spending it in ways that you should. Yeah. People that gather don't necessarily, mashallah, Bilal, people that gather it don't necessarily count it, right? Uh, and people who count it doesn't necessarily mean that they have much, right? Some people count it because they don't have much, and so they're counting it. Allah Azza wa specifies both. And so it's to show that these are people who do what? Who their whole, you know, like their whole existence is in amassing wealth. And it's about the dunya, and they're attached to it, and they've become slaves to it, and they have become subservient to it, and they've submitted themselves to this by hook or by crook, whichever way they will gather this wealth. And this is a common concept throughout the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often refers to this concept of people gathering wealth in ways that isn't beneficial to them, right? Or it's not something which is halal, or it's not something which is pure because of the way that they gather that wealth and the way that they amass it. And then because they refuse to give its rights. Right? Allah Azza wa Jal says, 
الذين يكنزون الذهب والفضة ولا ينفقونها في سبيل الله those who hoard and amass gold and silver and they don't spend it in the path of Allah فبشرهم بعذاب أليم then give them glad tidings of a painful punishment يوم يحمى عليها في نار جهنم on the day that it will be that same moth that they amassed and hoarded it will be heated within the fire of hell فتقوى بها جباههم وجنوبهم وظهورهم هذا ما كنزتم لأنفسكم فذوقوا ما كنتم تكنزون Allah says that Allah will then use those coins to burn those people on their foreheads, on their faces, on their backs and it will be said to them this is your treasure that you hoarded so now enjoy it enjoy the treasure that you wanted to amass Allah Azza wa will punish them using that same wealth that they hoarded that they didn't spend in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the famous hadith in At-Tirmidhi when he speaks about the types of people that you get on, on, on in this world there are four types of people in this world the first type that he mentions is the person who has wealth and knowledge and because of their knowledge they use their wealth in a way that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meaning knowledge of their religion knowing the rights of Allah and knowing you know the position of wealth and so on they use their knowledge in ways uh, to use their wealth in ways that please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which shows you what number one that wealth in and of itself is not an evil concept wealth is not evil in Islam nor is it impure in Islam nor is the concept of earning wealth or becoming wealthy or having you know like a lot of money in and of itself an impure concept or an evil concept or an incorrect or haram concept in Islam because wealth is a commodity it is the way that you use that wealth that determines <coughs> whether you you know like achieve great reward or whether you have punishment <coughs> so in the hadith the Prophet says this person has knowledge so they use that wealth to bring themselves closer to Allah to bring their family closer together to spend on the poor and the needy and the Prophet then rates this person right? he grades them and he says this is the best of all people to use your blessings and the skills that Allah has given to you with the knowledge that you have of your religion what pleases Allah what brings you closer to Allah how to use that asset in a way that will bring you closer to Allah and achieve maximum reward for you this is the best of people. The second person is the one who has knowledge, doesn't have wealth. They don't have money, but they were given knowledge. So they understand through their knowledge that there is a path to an equal amount of reward through intention. So this person says sincerely, Oh Allah, if I had money, like the first person had money, I would spend it in the way that they spend it. Meaning in the good that they do, I would do something similar. The Prophet said, This person will be rewarded for their intention, they will be equal in reward. Right? And that is equalness in reward based on intention, right? Because of what that person does. Yeah. The reward. So you know you said the, the, the first person who has the, in, uh, the intention and the capability to do that gets rewarded. You said the person who doesn't have the capability but has the intention. Does he get exactly the same reward or is his reward the same as the reward of intention but not the same as the reward of actually giving? So is the person who, or the second person who, who's, who has the intention but doesn't spend, are they equal in reward? Because he doesn't 
because of the intention or not because of the actual physical action. Allahu alam. But the hadith seems to be that they're equal in reward. Complete. Yeah. Because this person is refrained from spending for, because they have, they have the inability to spend. They don't have the money to spend. So but Allah Azza wa knows the sincerity of their intention that were they to be in that situation, they would spend. And it's similar to the hadith of Tabuk where the Prophet went for the battle and there were companions who didn't go and he said to the companions who were in the army, there are brothers of ours in Medina, they didn't step outside of Medina, didn't cross any valley or go down any mountain pass, but they have our reward. Habasahum al-Udr. It is a, a valid excuse that prevented them from leaving. So one thing is different, so a person doesn't have the financial capability to do, to do Hajj, but he intends it. If I had the money, I would to go to Hajj. Is he rewarded exactly the same as the person who did Hajj? Ah, so that's like a different issue, right? Because it's the same concept to do with intention, the reward of intention and the reward of actually doing the act. Yeah, but the... Okay, so the person who has the intention to do the action is similar to the other person who has the intention to do the same action. Yeah, now that person who goes and does the Hajj himself, they have extra reward. Why? Because they're doing extra acts of worship. When you go for Hajj, you're not just doing the intention, right? You're physically going and you're praying and you're doing adhkar and you're doing other stuff that that person wouldn't do. So they wouldn't be equal in that sense. It's like the hadith of the Prophet where he says that a person, you know, like people come later on, but they hold on to their religion, will have 70 of the rewards of the companion. Are they equal as companions? No, they're not, right? Because of the situation and the context. So there are other factors that are mitigating to us, right? But they get that reward, right? That, that is mentioned within the sunnah. So uh, then the third person that the Prophet mentions, right? the third person the Prophet mentions is the one who has wealth but no knowledge. So the first one was what? Knowledge and wealth. Second one is only knowledge. The third one is wealth but no knowledge. So this person, because they don't have knowledge, meaning they don't know what pleases Allah, they don't know how best to use their wealth, and they instead listen to their desires and the whisperings of shaitan, the hadith says that they don't, give the real rights of Allah and then uphold the rights of the, of, the, of the poor and the needy. And instead of bringing their family closer together, they drive their family apart, right? Because now everyone's fighting over money, fighting over land, fighting over property, right? And that's very common, right? When people don't understand how wealth is used and its rights, it drives people further apart, right? Within a family, within a community, within a neighborhood, within, amongst relatives and friends, it drives people apart. The Prophet ﷺ This is the worst of all people. And then the fourth one is the miskeen who has neither neither knowledge nor wealth. Nothing. But he does have intention. So rather than aspiring to be like the first person because of the lack of knowledge, who do they aspire to be like? The third one. Oh, if I had money, I would do that. Or I would chill and I would spend and I would enjoy myself and I would end up doing haram. And because of this sincere conviction, Allah knows that if they were in that situation and they had the money, they would spend it in that way. The Prophet said, He too will be judged according to his intention and he will be equal in sin. Right? <coughs> showing, what, showing that these are the types of people that you get in dunya. Some people who have good that Allah has given to them blessings and they use it in a way that brings them closer to Allah Azza wa And other people who have been given blessings but because of a lack of knowledge or a lack of you know piety, a lack of iman, they use it in ways that are displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So is knowledge uh, synonymous with iman and faith? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So here it is in this hadith: knowledge is iman, and it is righteous deeds, and it is, you know, uh, piety, and it is all of that stuff. So, so this is knowledge, right? Knowledge isn't necessarily that this person is a scholar. It is that they know the rights of Allah concerning what they have in terms of their wealth, right? And that's why in Islam, everything that you do, you have to have knowledge concerning it in order to fulfill that part of your responsibility. So as a parent, I need to know what are my rights and what are the rights of others. As a husband or a wife, what are my rights, the rights of others? If it's money and I'm involved in business, how do I do business that's halal? in accordance with the Sharia and so on, right? That's what it means by knowledge. Yeah, so that's the difference between us. So that's why knowledge here isn't just about the knowing. It's not information only, right? It is Iman and it is righteousness and it is piety, right? But it is what it is encapsulated in knowledge because knowledge is the basis of all that, right? Knowledge is the foundation. And you have similar hadith right, of, this, uh, of this type in the sunnah. So the concept of wealth in itself isn't that it is impure, but it is often mentioned in the Quran in this way, that it is evil and leads to harm because Allah often gives examples in the Quran of people who use their wealth in ways that are haram and in ways that are displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in ways that cause harm towards others because that is often the you know, the majority, right? That's because wealth is that type of temptation. So Allah Azza wa says, Al-Malu wal-Banuna zinatul dunya Wealth and children are from the adornments and from the trials of this life. In the Quran, we have the example, therefore, of Qarun, right? In Surah Qasas, Qarun is someone who's given wealth from the people of Musa Islam, his nation, given an amazing amount of treasure and wealth. And what does he do with it? He uses it to oppress and transgress and cause evil and harm. And you have the example of, for example, in Surah Al-Kahf, the man of the two, with the two gardens, that Allah Azza wa gives to him much wealth and much blessings and many blessings and, and he has prosperity. But instead of using it in a way that brings him closer to Allah Azza wa what ends up happening? He becomes arrogant. And he says to his friend, I have more money than you. I am stronger than you have more people in number. It leads him to arrogance. Right? So Allah Azza wa describes these people as people who chase the dunya and people who spend their time uh, chasing the dunya. So Suddi said in his tafsir it means the one who counts it. Right? Addada is to count. Ahsa. He's counting and he's seeing how much he has. Muhammad ibn Ka'ab said rahimahullah ta'ala this is the person who gathers his wealth by day and by night he counts it. By day he's amassing and by night he is counting, meaning that what his day and his night revolves around money. Right? His 24-7 is money. Either he's gathering or he's thinking of ways of gathering or he's counting. Or his whole life is money. He's attached to wealth. That is all he wants to do and all he wants to uh, attain in this dunya. And Muqatil said a similar statement but he's giving an example, is the one who gathers his wealth in order to buy livestock and servants and so on and so forth. So it's an example of what he's doing with this wealth, right? He's using that wealth to buy everything that he wants in this dunya and to gather this dunya 
for himself. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, and they have a similar statement from Imam al-Tabari, it is the one who gathers wealth to wealth. Meaning he gathers wealth upon wealth, money upon money, and then he uh, counts it and he, and he makes account of it. There is a recitation or a qira'ah, so we usually recite this verse as الَّذِي جَمَعَ مَالًا وَعَدَّدًا in the Qira'ah of Ibn Amir, Hamza, Al-Kisai, Abu Ja'far, Ruh, who is one of the narrators of Ya'qub, and Khalaf, they read it with a shadda. They say, Al-Ladhi jamma'a ma'law wa'addada. Al-Ladhi jamma'a ma'law wa'addada. And jamma'a and jamma'a means the same thing. But when you add a shadda in the Arabic language, if you add something to the root word, an extra letter, or a vowel or something, what it means is it takes it up a notch in eloquence, meaning that this person does more of the same thing. Right? So like for example, you have Rahim, which means merciful. Rahim is one who shows even more mercy. Rahman is one who has more mercy than this. Right? Because you're adding letters. When you add letters to the root word in Arabic, you increase in eloquence, meaning that this person does more of this. Right? It is more of the same. So likewise, the same thing here. Jama'amalan, this person is gathering wealth. Jama'amalan is he is amassing wealth upon wealth. Right? And one of the benefits, as we said, of these qira'at is what? That they act also as tafsir. Right? They add and give you a different meaning. So this person isn't just gathering wealth and adding wealth, but they are amassing wealth. And this is something which they're doing over and over. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah said, those scholars or those recitations that say jamma'a, it is also because then it rhymes with addada. Right? You say jamma'a addada. Right? So both of them have a tashdeed. And so he said, even from a linguistic point of view, it then makes it, um, makes it equal in that sense as well. But either way, the meaning is the same that these are people who gather their wealth and they spend their time gathering that wealth and counting it to uh, to make sure that they always have enough. Okay, is the stream dropping? Okay, so um, they're saying that the stream keeps dropping, so if you miss something, then um, the recording, yeah, the, record, the recording will be there, inshallah. This question Sumaira has is where is this hadith of the four types of people? It's in, um, what did I say? Tirmidhi. It's recorded by Tirmidhi. And it's the hadith of? His name's on the tip of my tongue. Abu. Huh? No, no, Abu I, I knew that one. <laughs> Uh, no, anyway, I forgot his name. But anyway, uh, if you do like a Google search, you'll find it. Innama dunya li nafar. And you'll find the hadith. Um, yeah, so it's in, but it's in, the hadith is a tirmid and it's a longer hadith. That the part that I mentioned is the final portion of the hadith. The hadith is longer than what I, what I mentioned to you. So, الذي جمع مالا وعدده المال Allah Azza wa Jal says that they gathered wealth. Mal, nowadays in like Arabic language and the way that it's spoken, mal is used and, and people normally refer to mal as money. 
Abu Kabsha. Abu Kabsha, right? That's, that's what it was. Abu Kabsha is the root of the hadith of a Tirmidhi. Abu Kabsha, radiallahu So, uh, al-mal, today when we say mal, we normally translate it as being money. Right? And even if you go to the translations, do they say money or do they say wealth? Do they say wealth? Okay. Or oh, riches, yeah. Okay. Um, so normally today, like now when people say mal, it refers to money, right? Which is, you know, pounds, dollars, gold, silver, and so on. But mal in classical Arabic, and especially in the context of the Quran and in the Sunnah, mal is more general. It is wealth, any form of wealth. And wealth would therefore be in accordance to the custom of that community and those people. What they would consider to be their trading commodity, what they would consider to, consider to be their wealth. Obviously now, across the world, you know, money is, wealth is pounds and dollars and currency and so on, because that's kind of become standard currency for everyone. But remember, in the time of the Prophet wasallam, actually the, the, not all of the Arabs trade in wealth, in, in money, in, in gold and silver, in dinar and dirham. That's not the common trading currency for many of the Arabs because the Arabs were poor. So what is mal for them? Mal is whatever it is that that community works on. So, for example, with the Ansar, it is their, you know, their um, livestock and their agriculture, because that's what the people of Medina are known for. So, mal for them is this: it is dates, it is barley, it is wheat, it is livestock, it is camels, it is cows, it is sheep, and so on. And that's why you'll find this in the Sunnah, in the Hadith, for example, in Sahih Muslim, the Hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, when he says that the people say concerning me, meaning Abu Huraira. He says, people say concerning me, I narrate too much hadith. I narrate too many hadith. And whilst the other companions don't narrate so many. He says, as for my brothers from the Ansar, they would be busied with their mal. Right? They're busy with their wealth. What is their wealth? Right? The context is their livestock and their, that's what they're busy with. Right? And the people of Mecca are busy with their wealth. What is their wealth? They are people of commerce and trade, right? They go to Syria, they go to Yemen, so they're more like money. So from amongst them, some of them are people of livestock, and some of them agriculture, and some of them people of, you know, like money, actually like physical silver and gold. So mal encompasses all of them. And therefore it would encompass in our time the same, right? Currency or whatever it is that we consider to be mal that people gather, right? Wealth that people gather. And it's something that you amass and amass and amass. And in those times, you know, it's not like commonly known amongst the Arabs, at least like as far as I know, that they would buy multiple houses, right? You don't really hear that the Arabs had five houses in Mecca, right? And six in Medina, or that they had them on rent and, you know, like that kind of, you don't really find that. Or that they had, you know, like multiple um, properties and, and land in that sense. Yes, they would possibly have a house and a farm, Right? A mazra'a or a hadiqa or a jannah, a garden, a farm that they would have. That's possible. But like just having multiple houses, no. But in our time, mal is that. Right? Many people, their business and their wealth is property. Right? Having lots of land and property and houses and, and renting it and so on. And so mal encompasses all of that. And so it is uh, incorrect just to think and just to narrow, make it narrow and think of just, oh, it's the money in the bank. Right? That's what it's referring to or it's my pounds and whatever. That's what it's referring to. No. Mal is a much wider and much general concept. And that's why it is the word that Allah uses in the Quran. Because when Allah wants to use dhahab and fiddah, gold and silver, that's what he says. 
Right, like in the verse in Tawbah that I mentioned to you. Those people who amass gold and silver, Allah specifies what it is. And other places Allah Azza wa specifies an am, right, which is livestock. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will mention them and these concepts when it is relevant. But generally speaking, when Allah Azza wa wants to measure, mention wealth, He uses the word mal because it encompasses all of these forms, right? encompasses all of these types of wealth. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it as mal. And it can be a prized possession. People who are into buying cars, that is mal. Right? It's not like, oh no, no, you know, I don't like have any money left in the bank because I've spent it on like these 10 cars. It is still mal. Right? It is still the concept of mal. Even if it's not being used as a trading commodity. Like horses, yeah, and so like it's not like you know oh, I have ten cars, but they're all mine. I drive them. Uh, they're not for hire, and they're not for rent, and no one can ask them, and whatever. And so therefore, no, mal is even the property that you keep for yourself, because in the hadith of, uh, is it the hadith of Anas? Yeah, the hadith of Anas radiyallahu anhu in Sahih Bukhari, when he's speaking about Abu Talha radiyallahu anhu, Allah Azza wa Jalla revealed the verse: "Lan tanalu al-birra hatta tunfiqu mimma tuhibun." You will never attain piety and righteousness until you spend from that which you love. Abu Talha, who's the stepfather of, of Anas radiallahu Abu Talha al-Ansari radiallahu comes to the Prophet and he says, O Messenger of Allah, my most beloved wealth, ahabbul mal ilay birha, is this wealth that he owned. And it's a wealth for him. That's his wealth. It's what he benefits from, what he uses. So it's not like a trading command, but he calls it mal. Oh Allah, oh Messenger of Allah, the most beloved wealth to me is this wealth. And I want to spend it in the path of Allah. So what shall I do? The Prophet said, do you have relatives that could need, like could do with this watering hole, this well that they could gather water from? He said, yes, oh Messenger of Allah. He said, then divide it amongst them. Make them partners and let them all benefit from it. Right? So the point is here that it's called mal. So mal is a much wider concept. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, الَّذِي جَمَعَ مَالًا وَعَدَّدًا These are people who amass wealth and they, you know, they gather that wealth and they count it. What's therefore the difference between these types of people and this type of description and then the examples of Abu Bakr and Uthman and Abdurrahman ibn Awf and others from amongst the companions radiyallahu anhum. Okay, number one, that they give, give it in terms of its rights. They're not miserly, they're not stingy. They spend in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two? Sorry? Yeah, they had wealth. So I'm saying, what's the difference between, right? This description of people who have wealth and those people who had wealth. They don't hoard it, right? They're not servants to it. They're not attached to it. Their dunya isn't running after wealth. Yes, Allah Azza wa blessed them and you know they were good at making money and so on. And so they didn't like neglect that skill or that talent that Allah placed in them. But at the same time, they didn't run behind, right? This wasn't the whole thing that they did. So you never find Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu saying, Oh Messenger of Allah, you know, I can't actually do this anymore because I'm a businessman, right? This is what I need to do. I don't have time for da'wah. You know, I'm, I'm busy with my money and my trade and so on. It's not the concept of the companions even after the death of the Prophet Uthman and Abu Bakr and others. And so they're not attached to the wealth and they know the rights of Allah regarding that wealth as well. And when you have that sincerity, that intention, that righteousness, that knowledge, 
wealth is one of the paths to Jannah, right? It's something which increases your reward. Like the famous hadith where the poor companions come to the Prophet and they say, O Messenger of Allah, the wealthy from amongst us have taken all of the rewards. He said, what do you mean? He said, they pray as we pray, they fast as we fast, but they give sadaqah and we have no money, so we can't give sadaqah. What did the Prophet say? Shall I tell you something that if you do it, you will be equal to them? Say, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allah Akbar, and the hadith. And then what happens after a few days? They come back. O Messenger of Allah, our brothers heard what you said. And now they make the dhikr that you gave to us. And the Prophet said, That is the grace and bounty of Allah. He gives it to whomsoever he wills. So when it is done with righteousness, it is an opportunity for great reward. right? And it is an avenue that is open for those people that many others do not have and um, you know, cannot uh, or aren't able to do. You had a question? No, no, no. Oh, online? He would go one day to, to visit Prophet yeah. but it would do to fulfill the rights of his family. Yes, so clearly there's a balance, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, obviously there's a balance in this, right? In terms of, um, so Umar radiallahu an, as you know, would work one day and he would spend a day with the Prophet to balance between the two, right? And Abu Bakr radiallahu an still has his business running, even though he's a companion. And Uthman radiallahu an, Abdurrahman ibn Awf and others, they still have their businesses as well, so they had a balance. However, there is also within the Sunnah people who dedicated their lives to knowledge, like Abu Hurairah and they dedicate themselves to knowledge, but they are not the general norm, right? Those are few, and obviously Abu Hurairah isn't married at the time, doesn't have children at the time, and so on. Okay, so the question is like companions like Uthman who are wealthy and prosperous and don't need to really work because they have so much wealth, but still they continue to work right? and they continue to dedicate a portion of their time to earning that living and, and continuing with their business. What's the balance there, right? Why are they doing that rather than spending more time, for example, studying or with the Prophet That is like them appreciating Allah's blessings and what Allah Azza wa has given them in terms of talents. And one thing that's amazing about the companions is the Prophet was able to nurture everyone's talents and skills. So someone like Uthman is never told, stop, right? You need to spend more time with me. You should be studying more. You should be learning more. And this is therefore like an incorrect concept sometimes when we think, you know, that oh, everyone should always be in our circles, right? Everyone should be studying. Everyone should be a student of knowledge. Everyone, No, everyone needs to learn what they need to learn about their religion in order to be a Muslim. They need to learn how to pray and give zakah and whatever else. But not everyone has to be a student of knowledge. And sometimes it is far better to have people in the community who have wealth and will support others who don't. Amongst them, students of knowledge and others. You need those people in the community, right? Abu Bakr radiallahu an, Uthman, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, they play a, a vital role in their community. But at the same time, remember that Abu Bakr and Uthman and Abdurrahman ibn Auf are what? from amongst the most knowledgeable of the companions as well. Right? So they had that balance as well. So it wasn't 
you know, one or the other. The, Abu Bakr is considered to be the most knowledgeable of the companions. Uthman from amongst them. Abdul Rahman ibn Awf from amongst the most senior and knowledgeable of the companions of the Prophet So, and, and you could add Umar into that category as well. Right? So they were people of knowledge as well, and they, you know, they had that balance between the two. Which is also an Islamic concept of not relying upon others, not being dependent upon others. Um, you know, and so Abdul Rahman ibn Awf, even though he's offered like half his friend's wealth you know, from the brothers of the Ansar, he refuses and he says, let me go and earn my own way. Right? That's obviously uh, an important concept as well. And so Islam is like always a balance right, between between this. And that's why this hadith is amazing, this hadith of At-Tirmidhi that I narrated, because the Prophet doesn't neglect this issue of wealth. Right? And he doesn't, in fact, he's saying wealth is a good thing here. And you can use it in a way to bring yourself close to Allah. The Prophet calls them the best of people because Allah Azza wa gave them money, wealth. And this doesn't mean necessarily that they're the wealthiest of people in the hadith. Right? It is people who have been given a comfortable living, have money, have wealth. Allah Azza wa has opened up doors for them where they have enough for themselves and they have more left over besides. Right? Those people are considered to be you know, wealthy in, a, in the sense of the word. Anything else? Oh. What is the difference between the word used here for backbiting with humas or lumas and when we say ghiba? This is also translated as backbiting. Yeah, it is true. Uh, ghiba is also um, translated as backbiting. Here the difference is that humas are like, as we said like last week when we were going through like the linguistic um, terms, how it is, uh, you know, the one who kind of degrades and one who it is more to do, it is more sinister than backbiting because backbiting can be someone backbites but they don't necessarily mean to harm. Or they, you know, people often backbite and say bad things but they don't necessarily mean that they actually wanted to demean that person. It's just the way some people are gossipy and some people always talk about others and some people. But here, no, it is actually with the intention of evil and harm and whatever. So it is a more severe form of, um, of, that type of backbiting and slandering. And that's why Allah Azza wa Jal calls it that in Surah Qalam, as we said last week. Right? And so Allah Azza wa Jal uses the word hammaz, which is a more severe form, and Allah knows best. So, uh, yeah, so going back to Addada, so these are people who are counting. Al-Dahaq, rahimahullah, said, it is those who count it in order that they may leave it behind for others who will inherit from them. It is those who count this wealth in order to leave it behind for others who will inherit from them. And that's also like this concept of wealth where people think that it gives them prestige and honor and so on. And so this person is gathering this wealth in order to, as, as some of the other scholars of Tafsir said, in order to show arrogance and pride. And, pride. and so they gather this wealth and they don't spend it on paths of good in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they consider it to be a source of honor for them, right? So the wealthier the, you are, the more honorable you are, the higher the status you have. Whereas if I spend it and I give it away, then my status diminishes, right? And my position in society diminishes. And it is that something which also stops people from spending in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah said, Addada, to count can also mean not just counting it, but to count its many types and varieties. 
So not that this person is only gathering one type of wealth, but that he is gathering many types of wealth. Like we said, livestock, agriculture, money, land, property, cars. He's gathering them all and he's making an inventory of all of them. So it is not just one wealth, but he is gathering many types of wealth. And Iqlima rahimahullah ta'ala said, he gathers his wealth to think that it is something which he will leave behind as his legacy, or that it is something which will live on after him. Right? And this is similar to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will mention in the next verse, verse number three, because Allah azza wa then goes on to say, يَحْسَبُ أَنَّ مَا لَهُ أَخْلَدَ يَحْسَبُ أَنَّ مَا لَهُ أَخْلَدَ He thinks that his wealth will make him last forever, or in the other translation, thinking they will make him live forever. He thinks that his wealth will make him eternal or immortal. Right? So this person thinks that their wealth will give them immortality. Why? Why would this person think that, that they, and not necessarily that they will have um, immortality or whatever, but that they will always have a name and honor and reward and whatever, prestige. Why? One of the, the greatest things that you find in the Quran, in, in the stories of these people of wealth, become attached to wealth and subservient to wealth is that they often think that their wealth is a sign of Allah's pleasure over them, is a sign of Allah's love for them. They, they equate wealth and the fact that Allah has given them this blessing of wealth where many others don't have wealth, they don't have money, they're not in that position of comfort, that therefore Allah must love me and Allah must be happy with me and Allah must approve of what I'm doing. And that's why Allah has blessed me in this way. And he has not blessed others. And that's like, um, you know, very explicit in some of the passages of the Quran, like in Surah Al-Kahf, right, in, in the story of the man with the two gardens. Allah says he entered into his garden and he's oppressing himself. And he says, I don't think that this will ever diminish. I will never lose what I've been given from this garden and its wealth and so on. And so that is arrogance and pride. Right, his friend saying to him, be humble, right? Be humble, don't, don't be arrogant. Thank Allah, giving the way of Allah and so on. He's saying, no, I don't think this will ever finish. Nor do I think that Yawm Al-Qiyamah, the hour, will ever be established. And then what does he say? And even if I were to return to my Lord, I would find something better in return. Why would he think that he would have? I mean, he's denied Qiyamah, he's denied resurrection, he's denied everything. And now he's saying that actually even if I go back, even if there is for the sake of argument, Qiyamah, an accounting, I stand before Allah, surely Allah would give me even more, even greater, even you know, more blessings and more wealth and so on. Why? Because it comes from that same belief and notion that Allah must be pleased with what I'm doing. Right? I do haram, I spend, I buy, I do what I want, and I still get more money. I'm still making more, I'm still wealthy, I still have it. And therefore, Allah must approve. So surely when I go back to Allah, or on the day of judgment, or Allah takes me back to Him, surely Allah would give me even more. Allah would reward me even more. Allah would give me better than what I have in this life. And it is that concept often with wealth that causes arrogance and causes pride and causes a person to become so haughty and so that it can even lead to disbelief as in the case of this man with the two gardens. Right? And that's not understanding wealth. It's not understanding how Allah Azza wa views wealth and how everything in this dunya 
in the sight of Allah Azza wa is only equal to the wing of a mosquito as is mentioned in the hadith. That it's nothing. Allah doesn't consider it to be important. So Allah gives it to whomsoever he wills and withholds it from whomsoever he wills. And he gives it to people that he loves and people that he doesn't love. Because it is not a sign of Allah's approval. It is a test that Allah Azza wa tests people with. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't view things the way that we view them. And he doesn't measure people the way that we measure them. And so this is a common thing in the Qur'an and that's why you find what the opposite is true as well. Whereas people who are poor or in poverty may be considered to be people who are far from Allah's grace or far from his bounties or far from his blessings. Actually, we know from the Qur'an and the Sunnah that the opposite is often true. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often honors them and Allah azza wa jalla loves them and they have more piety and righteousness within them. And they will enter into Jannah 50,000 years before their wealthier brothers and sisters. And, you know, like, and the hadith and, and so on are many in that regard, right? Where people who are poor and in positions of poverty, Allah Azza wa Jal honors them if they have obviously iman and taqwa and so on. But that's something which Allah Azza wa Jal honors within them, irrespective of their financial status. And so it is a balance, you know, between the two always. <coughs> That is also true as well. So, um, yeah, so Allah Azza wa Jal often, before punishing a person, He increases them in there. The punishment is heavier, therefore. Yeah, that a person, if they transgress, they continue in their transgression for a long time before Allah Azza wa Jal's punishment usually descends. That's usually how Allah Azza wa Jal does something when a person transgresses. And they, and they disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they go to the extremes of that transgression that Allah azza wa jalla allow them to continue to accumulate that sin for two reasons number one to give them the opportunity to repent so that they have no excuse to say that I was never given any time or any chance but also because their evil will only continue to increase and so the punishment when it strikes will also be harder upon them when it strikes upon them so here Allah Azza wa is saying the same thing, right? These people who gather their wealth and they count it and they amass and hoard it, why do they do it? Because they think it is a sign of Allah's love or approval. They think that it will make them immortal, that it will make them last forever. Either themselves or their name, their legacy, their children, whatever, it will continue to stay within them. And even if they die, they will benefit from it in the next life. Right, whatever the, the understanding of that next life may be. They will take it there, they will benefit from it. Right? It's very common amongst, life, for example, the ancient Egyptians. Right? When they would die, what would they bury with their wealthy and their pharaohs and so on? You bury everything. Right? All their wealth and all their gold. And, all their, right? and that's why like, you have these tomb raiders. Right? Because when you, their, their graves are full of like, wealth. And so that's what they do. They, they used to, why, why do they bury everything with them? Because the belief that the next life, whatever that maybe they will continue to benefit right? it gives them a sense of eternity right immortality and so that's what they used to believe so these people think the same thing ibn kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said this person thinks that they will live forever in this life death will not touch them because of their wealth and because of their prosperity ikrima rahimahullah said it means that they think that it will give them an increase in their lifespan so not necessarily that they will live forever but that they will live for much longer, it will increase them in their lifespan. As Suddi said, they think that it will prevent them from death. It will prevent them from death or save them from death. And you have the two recitations, right? Yahsabu 
أن ما له أخلد أن يحسبه ابن عامر أن عاصم حمزة أبو جعفر سيحسبه all the others so نافع ابن كثير أبو عمر and the قراء they recite it as يحسبه with the كسرة and both of them mean the same thing they are just two pronunciations or two لغات amongst the Arabs that they would read them in different ways one with the فتحة and one with a kasra that they think that their wealth will uh, give them longevity and it will give them eternity alright uh, any questions I think we'll, we'll stop there today, inshallah ta'ala well, you mentioned with the hadith about the four different people the last one was with no wealth no knowledge but yet their intention but if they intend to do something bad they'll still get a reward for it because it's firm from their conviction yeah. So the difference between in the hadith of the four that's mentioned that we mentioned in Tirmidhi, intention means a firm conviction. You know, you get the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that if a person intends to do a good deed and they don't do it, they get the reward. And if they intend to do a bad deed and then they don't do it, it is removed from them. Right? The the difference between the two is the conviction. So there's a difference between someone who intends to do something and then changes their mind person intends to commit a sin, to steal, to do harm, and then they're like, you know, actually, no, that's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. And they didn't do anything. In their heart, they change. They get a reward for that. This hadith says what? These are people who would do it. The only reason that they don't is because they can't. They don't have the ability. Right? Like someone who, you know, if someone's, for example, driving, and they're going to steal something, and their car breaks down, do we say that, oh, they're not sinful? Well, they're sinful. They had every intention. It's just circumstances out of their control came and changed the scenario and they couldn't do it. They still have the sin because they have the firm conviction. Right? That is what niyyah means. Niyyah has you know, a couple of meanings. One of them is that firm conviction. And that's why the hadith says, man hamma. Or alham is conviction with intention. You sincerely, really intend to do that. And that's what Allah Azza wa knows. Right? And that's why like someone has, you know, like sees other people and they're wealthy and they're like, yeah, that's nice, you know, I do. That's not a firm conviction, right? Because if Allah was to give them that wealth as well, would they necessarily do it? No. They could, you know, just go and spend it somewhere else. They're just like, yeah, that's a nice thing to do. That's not a firm conviction. It's not a firm intention. Right? A firm intention is when you would, if you could, right? You would definitely do it and Allah knows you would. Like those companions who were willing to leave from uh, Medina to go to Tabuk, they just couldn't because they didn't have the ability to do so. Right? That's that's the difference between the two. In the link between these two uh, verses two and three uh, against the first one, is it like uh, speaking generally, as in someone who's backbites and slanders is normally with a straight up thing? Yes. So the links between verses one, two, and three is like from multiple angles. From them is that a person who slanders in this way and, and spreads rumors and speaks in this way is a person who doesn't fear an accounting, right? doesn't fear that they will be held to account or that they will be judged for this. And often we think that you know, spreading rumors and what we say with our tongues is something like light. It's not like, you know, so I didn't actually hurt the guy. I didn't hit him. I didn't steal his money. You know, we kind of consider it to be a lighter form. But Allah is saying, is no, it's not, it's not a lighter form. And so the two are both in their own way attached to the dunya. Or not thinking that they will be held to account for what they've done. You know, with regards to going to the, the message, they often give the example of a person who does water with cold water, for example. Surely the one who goes out of his way just to find cold water, 
isn't rewarded the same as the person who wants to do wudu and the only water available is sweet and cold water. Surely that person gets rewarded more because he's struggling. So he's not putting himself in difficulty. Yes, yeah, so so the the more that you struggle and strive, it is possible that you get a great reward with the extra it's struggle. Have, like if I have cold, nice warm water and I have freezing water, but I decide to go with freezing water. Surely I don't get rewarded more for that. No, no, you don't get more rewarded for that if you have a choice, yeah. right? If you have to struggle more because the masjid is further from your home than someone who lives next door, that's like a, a struggle. But if you have the choice of warm water and cold water, you're like, no, I'm going to go for the cold water. No, that's not because the Prophet was never given a choice between two things, except that he chose the easier one so long as it wasn't haram. But then in terms of going to the masjid, I know many scholars say walking is better, but... Walking is better because there's hadith that speak about that, right? Yeah, because the hadith says that the more footsteps, the more reward you get. Right? When you drive, you're not going to get that, those footsteps. So the more that you walk every footstep, one good deed, one evil deed taken away, one level raised. Right? That's like an amazing reward. And that's what you have. Like, you know, books called Adabul Mashi ila Salah. Etiquettes of walking to the prayer because of, of, its, of its status. Okay, Barakallahu feekum, wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.